Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is the third leading cause of death and disability in the United States. Its symptoms are insidious, feeling a little breathless, to being unable to go up a flight of stairs. Smoking is the number one cause, but not the only one. Today, we're going to learn a bit more about it. Valerie Chang from the COPD Coalition is in the studio, along with Susie from the Rehabilitation Hospital of the Pacific, talking about a brand new program that they're going to institute to help people who have COPD to learn how to breathe better. So we're going to be talking about how to know if you or someone you love has this diagnosis and what to do about it. But first, we have the last two of the summer student research scholars from Hawaii Pacific Health in the studio. They're fresh off of their project presentation to an entire room filled with about 150 doctors. So if you ever thought you'd be nervous, imagine what they have just been through. So we are going to talk to these guys about great research opportunities and what are we learning right here in Hawaii about different medical topics that can help all of us. So first, we have Nicole Nakamatsu. Now, Nicole, you are a student at the University of Washington in Seattle studying biology, and you're lucky enough to not be back at school yet till when, the end of September? Yes, September 30th is when we actually start school. September 30th. That sounds fantastic. I wish I wish I had off till September 30th, <laughs> but okay. So now you were taking your summer vacation this year, and you were working on a medical project with one of, uh, one of the docs... Dr. Janet Burlingame, and tell me a little bit about what you were doing and why this has excited you enough that you want to keep going with the research. Um, basically, what we were doing were, was we were looking at the Code Crimson Protocol, which is a massive transfusion protocol that was instituted at Kapiolani Hospital on December 1st, 2010. And um, it's basically a protocol that helps to manage hemorrhaging patients. And the protocol improves hospital staff communication and product and transfusion delivery times so as to reduce further detrimental hemorrhage, morbidity, and mortality. So we're talking about bleeding. Yes. Code crimson, kind of like code red, but it's not that bad. Code mm-hmm. red generally means like your heart stops. So this is not that kind of red. This is code crimson. Code we're crimson. talking about bleeding. Mm-hmm. And who is it that's bleeding? Um, they are obstetric patients. So yeah. women who are pregnant. Mm-hmm. And when they're bleeding, the protocol is to give them transfusions? Yes. Yeah. And um, what they do is they do an early initiation and a rapid transfusion of a one-to-one ratio of fresh frozen plasma and packed red blood cells. So this isn't what they were doing prior to December 2010? No, yeah. This is not what they were doing. So now they've instituted this new protocol, and is it better? Is it working? Yes, it actually is working. And some of the things that we found... um, was that there was an increase in the number of massive transfusions per 1,000 live births at Kapiolani Hospital. But despite the increase in massive transfusion, there was a decrease in the number of units being transfused for those patients. So therefore, there's kind of like a cost-saving component to the protocol because you're using less blood products. So you're catching early who needs it. Mm -hmm. You're giving them what they need. Yes. They won't need as much later because you've caught it in the beginning Mm -hmm. and... Every administrator loves to hear that they're saving money. Yes, exactly. Okay, but it's better for patient outcomes. It's better for care as well. Yes. Fantastic. So now this is a project you were working on and you found out the results. What's your plan now? Um, I hope to continue my work with Dr. Burlingame until I leave for school. 
before the end of September. And I hope to possibly publish the work that we have done. So we should be looking out for a publication and hearing more about what's happening right here at Kapiolani and how they're reforming their transfusion protocol to really help women Mm -hmm. and through the process of childbirth. Yes, exactly. Fantastic. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. Now, you're going to be going and finishing up which year in Seattle? Uh, my junior year, actually. Junior year. Okay. Yeah, two so more we might <laughs> we might see you back here next summer working on the project or doing some other project related stuff. And then your goal in the future, medical school, or you're still thinking about it? Or yes, my plan is medical school. That's my goal. <laughs> All right. Well, we would be happy to be able to have someone like yourself who's so interested in research but also interested in clinical practice, the kind of stuff that could change what you do, you know, next week or the following week when you find out there's a better way to do what we always used to. So excellent. Wishing you all the best in your career and come back home. We need good folks here. I will. I plan to come back home. So thank you, Dr. Kozak. All right. Thank you for spending your time and sharing your research project with us. We also have Nicole Chong. Now, another Nicole, I can't get your names wrong. I'm known to do that. Uh, But tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, you're currently studying at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And what are you studying? Oh, I'm studying molecular cell biology, and I'm entering my fourth year. So Okay, so you're going to be a senior. Yes. <laughs> so that's like a big deal. This is your last year of college. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's your plan after that? My plans are to take a gap year before um, applying to med school. You know, love gap year. Yeah, I love Good gap work. years, too. I want a gap year now. Some people think I'm just too old to have a gap year. I just want a gap year right now. All right, so what are you going to do during your gap year? Well, um, I'm still thinking about it, but okay. as of now, I'd really like to find like maybe a part-time job, you know, really start earning money. And I'd also love to travel. Like, I really want to see the world, you know. So. Are your parents listening right now? I hope they are. Okay. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to tell uh, Mommy and Daddy Chong. You need to fund your daughter's travel through Europe. I'm just saying that if she's going to have a gap year, you know, she doesn't need to enter the workforce any sooner than she really has to. And if you were her age, you'd want to go. And if you're nice, maybe she'll even let you join her for a little while. Fund her gap year. (laughs) All right, Mommy, Daddy Chong, fund the gap year. And if you don't want to fund her gap year, you can always fund mine. (laughs) Okay, so tell me a little bit about your program and what research you were doing this summer. Well, this summer, um, I evaluated the clinical impact of PC3 when incorporated into prostate cancer screening. So a little bit background. Um, Current screening methods use PSA, prostate-specific antigen, but it's not recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force because it's not specific to prostate cancer, and it cannot distinguish between insignificant or significant cases. So it has led to overdiagnosis and overtreatment. So PC3 is like another biomarker they're considering. It's um, prostate cancer antigen 3, and it's specific to prostate cancer. It's a long non-coding RNA overexpressed up to 66 to 100 times in prostate cancer tissue. So this summer, I compared the traditional method, which relies solely on PSA to determine whether one should get biopsy, to the new method, which incorporates PC3 after an abnormal PSA test. And so, and then we wanted to see if the new method could help us avoid unnecessary biopsies, but also help remedy the concern of overdiagnosing prostate cancer. So here's what has been going on in medicine. You know, we always used to say men over 50, you need to have this blood test called a PSA. And what the medical community has been finding out, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, but also some other folks, is that that's not really a good idea. 
we were never stopping PSAs. We might order them on someone who's 90. And we really had to take a closer look and say, is this test really helpful? Because we could wind up finding abnormalities for people for whom it's never going to affect their lives. So why are we testing it if they're 90? Um, or we might find wind up finding out that men who were younger have these abnormal results, but it could be from things that are not related to cancer. So the big controversy has been not just doing the blood test, but really what do you do with the results? And so this is one way that the, the research community is trying to find another way to really figure out, okay, so if you're going to do a PSA, this blood test for the prostate, and you get a normal result, fine. If you get an abnormal result, it used to lead directly to biopsy and workup and treatment. And that has a lot of side effects. I mean, doing a surgery for a prostate cancer could cause problems with urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction and a lot of problems. So you were studying this new biomarker that might help to answer that question, should men who have abnormal PSAs do something else between I have this high level and I need to do surgery. Is there some other blood test? So that's what you were working on. So tell me about the results. What did you guys find out? Is this a good test? Do you think it'll actually replace PSA at some point? Well, what we found was that um, using the new method, that 58 biopsies were spared. So those were 58 patients who had abnormal PSAs, but normal PCA3 scores. So because of that, um, that was nearly actually 50% of the patients screened by the new method. So that was quite a bit of people who didn't have to get biopsies. Um, we also found that um, traditional patients or traditional method patients who got biopsies, they tended to have like a higher average of PSAs. And so we believe that this could be due to um, preserving biopsies for just the really high average of PSAs because of the concern of overdiagnosing. So you still have like the, the few individuals who um, had abnormal PSAs but were not getting biopsies, but there's concerns that significant cancers were missed among those people. So actually only 98 um, individuals out of 385 with abnormal PSAs um, got biopsies. And so um, what we found was um, the patients screened using the new method, they actually had clinically similar PSA levels to the patients with abnormal PSAs but not were, who are not getting biopsies. And significant cancers were found among those individuals. So there's just we just found there's the concern of significant cancers being missed. We're still there. So... so Let's say you're talking to your dad because he's decided to fund your gap year. <laughs> and he says to you, I'm going to fund this year of travel. How wonderful. I'm going to join you whenever you go somewhere you want to go. And we'll invite Dr. Kozak because I'm sure he would say that. And what is, what, what's your answer to his question, should I check a PSA and or should I do this PCA3 testing? If you were to give him some advice now, I am putting you on the spot and how rude of me. Like, here you are. I haven't answered this. But uh, but what would your suggestion be to him? Well, um, so looking through some other studies, um, PSA has a seg sensitivity of 28%. And I believe PCA3 has about a sensitivity of 69%. But when you combine both tests, the um, sensitivity rate actually goes to around the 70s. So I'd actually ask him maybe consider PSA first. And okay. then if it's really like abnormal, like, you know, consider PCA3 as well because, you know, getting a biopsy is not a pleasant experience. So, Okay. So you would tell him this could be a good way to figure out if your test is abnormal. This is another step. You might find out that you're okay. You might find out that you're not, but at least you've done the second step. Mm -hmm. And then if you need a surgery, I'll come home from my gap year and I'll be there because mm -hmm. <laughs> you bought my ticket.
I hope he hears this. All right. <laughs> Great. So it's not, I mean, this is a new sort of revolution that we're looking at in prostate cancer and treatment because a few years ago, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force said nobody should ever do a PSA ever. And yet prostate cancer kills a lot of people every year. In fact, it kills more men than breast cancer kills women in the average course of a year. And so, you know, that's certainly a difficult thing to realize is that this could still have a significant impact in men's lives. And I'm happy to hear that we're getting some research done to help figure out that that in between. What do we do? It's kind of like almost like a gap. What do we do between <laughs> our PSA test and our biopsy? Could this fill the gap like travel would? All right. So excellent. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about what the final results are. And is that also an article you might be publishing? Hopefully, yeah. So we just see how this goes, yeah. Fantastic. Okay, well, thanks so much for spending your summer doing research because that's not something everybody does. And uh, it's certainly going to hopefully help for the people here in the islands who want to know more about research and also want to know more about prostate cancer. This is where the studies are happening. This is how we figure out what do we tell you to do next is by doing the research, having people like yourselves put in the time and effort to do the statistical analysis to answer that question. So thanks to both of you for not only your projects, giving up your summertime, but also coming on the show and sharing that information with all of us. No, thank you for having having us. us. All right. Thank both of you for being on. And when we come back after a quick break, we are going to talk with Valerie Chang of the Hawaii COPD Coalition and Susie from the Rehab Hospital of the Pacific about what's going on with COPD these days. There's a really good educational event coming up soon, and there's also going to be some new ways to help people with lung disease improve their lung function by working on activity and exercise. So if you or someone you love has ever been diagnosed with COPD, we would love to hear from you. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I especially like to listen to uh, Marketplace. I find that I'm on the road around that time and that it's very uh, informative. Um, Sometimes I'll be driving when StoryCorps comes on, and those segments always make my eyes well up a little bit, and then I have to regain my composure before I go to the office in the morning. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. With the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, we look back at the work of poet and hospital trauma chaplain Martha Surpass, who discusses the eroding Gulf Coast. Water is obviously life-giving, it's necessary, it's vital, and it's also incredibly destructive. Martha Surpass also talks about Cajun Catholicism and her faith as a lesbian on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. And just when you thought this was just a diagnosis that only affected old men, uh uh-uh, 
One of the fastest growing groups who are getting diagnosed with this happen to be women. So today we are talking with Susie from the Rehab Hospital of the Pacific about a brand new program that they're going to start called Pulmonary Rehabilitation for COPD. We're going to talk with our friend Valerie Chang, who is the creator of the Hawaii COPD Coalition. And this has become her life mission and work to really help educate those who have this diagnosis and help people overall to improve their quality of life by improving their lung function. So welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right. Let's do a little myth busting. I always have fun with this, Val. And myth busting is going to be, I'm going to mention something and you're going to tell me true or false as we talk about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Okay. So, and then we'll talk a little more about the definition. But first off, uh, it only happens in smokers. True or false? Very much false. Okay. And you're a prime example of that. Yes. Actually, um, there's an article that um, Newsweek just published in May of 2015 um, where the doctor... Dave Menino said that about one-sixth of the people in whole, in the U.S. that have COPD were never smokers, like myself. Um, so one out of every six people diagnosed with this condition, non-smoker. Yes, but most of them had some sort of exposure, like they, they were um, flight attendants or they worked in a restaurant and there were a lot of smokers or they, you know, did auto body work or exposed to a lot of fog even. So some other type of exposure Usually. of something they would inhale. Usually. Okay. All right. Let's do another little myth busting. Um, once you have COPD, there is absolutely no cure and you're destined to be unable mm -hmm. to do activity, exercise, or walk. Susie, we'll put you in this uh, category. Once you got the diagnosis, that's it for you. True or false? Bust my myth if it is one. Well, it's true that you may not be cured of the disease. However, you can improve your life, your quality of life with exercise. And that's actually the only proven thing that has been shown to improve uh, the COPD condition, especially with symptom management. Okay. So another myth is busted. All right. Um, the next myth, Val, I'm going to throw this one oh, to you. Can okay. I say something? Always. One of the um, patients that has severe COPD um, uses oxygen, and he pushed 80 pounds of oxygen to run the Boston Marathon. So wow. okay. it can be done. So he ran a marathon and pushed 80 pounds of oxygen. The Boston Marathon. You have to qualify for that. You have to qualify that. to do that. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, I bow down to this amazing individual wherever in the world you are. That is incredible. Okay, now that I feel like a slug, thank you, Val. Let's bust another, another uh, myth. If you have COPD, you should always get your flu shot every year. True or false? That's definitely true. All right. That's a yes. And in fact, everyone in your household should so that they don't get the flu. They don't share the flu with you. Okay. And you should also get a pneumonia vaccination, a well, pneumonia shot. There's a controversy as to how many times you should get it. People at National Jewish, where my doctor is in Colorado, say I'm supposed to get it every five years, but the Centers for Disease Control say you only need it once or twice in your lifetime. So, Kind of an interesting... Depends like on a, your doctor. Depends on your doctor. And I think there now there's a new pneumonia shot, Prevnar. Yes. yes. So, 13 
Absolutely. So that's a shot that if you've previously gotten the pneumonia shot, anytime a year or greater time frame, you can get this update of this Prevnar if you're over 65 or if you have a lung condition like COPD, that this would be a good idea for you because, you know, people who have lungs that are impaired, bacteria love to prey on them. And if you can prevent getting infected with those bacteria by this additional pneumococcal vaccination, the Prevnar, it's fantastic. So, okay. So that's a myth. And we say it's not a myth. It's a truth. Yes, you should get your flu shot, but also you should get a pneumonia shot and your family members should get flu shots as well. Correct. And actually, um, asthmatics are recommended to check with their doctor as to when they should get their pneumonia shot as well. Okay, so we've been busting some myths. Um, I'd love to have you tell me a little bit more about COPD as a condition. So now that we've gone through a couple of the common misconceptions, tell me a little bit about what this diagnosis means. People hear it. They kind of think it is emphysema. Emphysema and COPD are the same exact thing. One causes the other. Maybe one is the other. What would you describe as a good way to explain COPD, and how do you share that with other people? Well, to me, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, is like an umbrella. Okay. And under the umbrella, there's emphysema, there's chronic bronchitis, and some people include chronic asthma. And the difference between chronic asthma and exercise-induced or episodic asthma is that you can't ever quite get rid of it. Like, you know, gold medal Olympic winners can have exercise-induced asthma, but they take their medicine and they're good to go. I mean, they're better than the rest of us, right? Yep. But those of us with ep- uh, chronic asthma, it never quite goes away. And it's always kind of lingering and it's always, it might make you cough, but if you take your medicine, you may cough less and might be able to do more. Um, it's chronic in that you can't quite get rid of it. It's kind of like your companion for the rest of your life. Um, and it's obstructive because it um, it sort of traps your air, and it's a disease. So that's what it is, COPD. You got it. So it's chronic, it's obstructive. Tell me a little bit about this process. Sometimes people think, air, how does air get trapped in your lungs? What does that mean? And yet this whole process relates with the fact that your your lungs may not have enough elasticity to empty the air when you breathe out. How do you describe this to people, Susie, when you educate them about their condition? Well, it's, it's actually what we describe as air trapping. So they can't, the air is in, but they can't force it out. And in essence, it's like breathing through a straw. So try to imagine breathing through a straw and doing uh, your basic activities of your daily life. Going up a flight of stairs, walking from the store to, in, to your spot in the parking lot. Very basic things that that people have have trouble doing that a normal person or that's not diagnosed doesn't even think about twice in their day. It's kind of like a floppy balloon. That's what some people say. Instead of, you know, a brand new balloon is very, very tough and it, it sprongs back to whatever shape it was. Whereas the floppy one that you've blown and exhaled and, and, and let the air out a lot of times, it doesn't really get back to its old shape. And that's what our air sacs are like when we have COPD. Another one of those things that happens that makes me just think of age. Okay. (laughs) Just these wonderful thoughts. I'm going to think positive thoughts. Okay. So we talked about the umbrella apropos today because it's been quite rainy. But, you know, so COPD is a general broad term, and then there's different areas, subspecialties underneath, the chronic bronchitis, the cough with the mucus, the emphysema, and the chronic asthma. Let's talk, Val, about symptoms, and then, Susie, I want to talk with you about diagnostic testing. So, Val, 
tell me the symptoms. We talked about breathing through a straw, and that's pretty severe and dramatic. What are some of the earliest symptoms of COPD that someone might experience and maybe blow off and not know it's something they have to talk to their provider about? One of the, the important things for people to think about is if they're starting to do less because they're afraid of getting breathless. And they'll say, I'm not breathless, but then they're just doing less and less, and they're sitting on their couch more, and they're trying to park closer and closer to where they want to go because they're afraid of getting breathless. But they say they're not because they just limit their activities. And after a while, they get more and more breathless because they limit more and more, and they get more and more deconditioned. So um, progressive decrease in your ability to do right. your activities. And you're right. Sometimes people say, well, I don't get short of breath when I go up the stairs because I bought a house on one floor. So, yeah. you know, they, they alter their lifestyle as a right. result. Or they okay. just take a lot of rest stops. You know, like they, 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 they walk a little while and they sit down and they walk a little while and they sit down. And so they always are trying to figure out where's the next place I can rest. And they try to choose their companions that also like to take a lot of rest. So. You know, so those are some of the early subtle signs. Yeah. And then the more severe sign, breathing through a straw. What's sort of the in-between? Well, they, they might cough a lot more. Okay. And then when they get sick, they tend to stay sick a lot longer. Like, you know. That it, lingering cough of three months. Yeah. Like normal people will get, you know, get a cold and it'll last maybe a day or two or even a week. And if I get a cold, it might last a month or two. And, you know, it's just a lot of little things. And then the coughing, you know, you can have a chronic cough and you can spit up. You, you get mucus three months, a year, twice, two years in a row. That's the. And is it colored? Is it clear? Is it white? What is the usual? Or could it be any of the above? It could be any of the above. But if it keeps changing color, then you need to talk to your doctor. Sure, because there could be an infection involved. Definitely. And Absolutely. then you'd have to be careful with that. Okay. Now, how is it diagnosed, Susie? What what sort of tests do people do to get a diagnosis of COPD? Uh, well, there's various ways, but the, the biggest uh, one is a having a pulmonary function test done. And that can be done in a variety of ways uh, in the physician's office, or the physician may um, decide to send them to an actual pulmonary lab. I mean, in layman's terms, it's it's literally measuring um, volume, looking to see how much air the patient can um, breathe out, looking to see what's what's uh, reserved, and really looking at that symptom management and what they're doing prior to those those tests. So. Most people don't realize, but when we breathe normally throughout the day, we have we have somewhat shallow breaths, and we get the air in, we get the air out. But when you do this pulmonary test, you're really trying to maximize how much air you can breathe in and then maximize how much you can push out within the first second or two of your breathing, and they're really trying to measure how elastic, how functional are your lungs. So this is a test that can actually help somebody to get diagnosed that they may have this air trapping. I Correct. like that term, air trapping, you use. Val. It's a little bit, I think people, it's a little bit easier than to hear about obstruction. You know, I think mm -hmm. the air trapping is something we can all kind of visualize in a way. And so that's how they would get diagnosed. Now, this has become something that the the medical community has known has been a problem with, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. But not often have we really had the ability to help people to work on their activity and exercise. I mean, it's one thing when you have a heart condition and you're told, 
go do a rehabilitation program. We're going to monitor you, put you on a heart monitor, watch you, make sure you're safe. And then once you are, you're going to do your exercise outdoors and outside and, and do all those things you love. It really hasn't been the case that we've had that capacity to work on lung function like this in a safe, monitored setting. So tell me a little bit about this new rehabilitation program that's going to happen at the rehab hospital and what are some of the plans? What are the goals? Well, we're really excited at Rehab to bring this um, program to the community because there isn't one currently actually in the state of Hawaii. Uh, pulmonary rehab is very similar to cardiac rehab. Um, basically, the biggest difference is that there's no cardiac monitor. That being said, it is a uh, individualized, comprehensive program that uses the patient and what they can tolerate and builds their endurance. It it's monitored with a, uh, a special team that has been trained in pulmonary rehab. With that patient, a pulmonary patient, they're much sicker in a way than a, what you would think of as a cardiac patient. Their endurance is less, so it entails a lot of interval training, lots of, lots of uh, breaks in between, and then gradually increasing those intervals over time based on what they can tolerate. Throughout that, they are monitored in terms of blood pressure, their oxygenation, and what they're telling us as their perceived exertion or their perceived level of dyspnea or shortness of breath. So it's very regulated. Um, our program follows AACVPR guidelines, which is the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehab. So it's a very strict science that's applied to the exercise prescription, again, based on what that patient can tolerate. Well, and it sounds a lot like, Val, you mentioned earlier, if you find yourself taking all these extra breaks when you're shopping because you need to have that little break to sit down, this is a way to measure how far apart are your breaks and try and extend that so that you can improve your overall lung function. Now, you mentioned something that I want to discuss briefly about pulse oximetry, this little oxygen monitor. And you've always had one. Look, you're reaching in your bag. You probably have it with you now. And it's a tiny little device that you can put on your finger with the red light usually. It's kind of like, like a little ET kind of device. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is actually measure how much oxygen is in your blood. Goal being to have a level of 93 to 100 and higher the better. And so for people who have COPD, sometimes their level is lower. Now, you just turn your device on. Val, talk about like real on-site monitoring. What is your level right now talking with us? I'm at 97. Um, 97%. Oxygenation, okay. yeah. At Which that 93 yeah. to 99 or 100, mm -hmm. you were about 97. With so. no oxygen. Yes, but it actually has dropped. The lowest I've ever recorded is 70, which is not a very pleasant number. <laughs> no, and I bet you felt it when you hit 70. Yeah, you feel like you have cement on your legs. It's, mm. it's kind of surreal. Okay, and it's one of those unmistakable feelings, I would imagine, like yeah. low blood sugar. If you've ever felt it, you know what that feels like. It's really hard to describe that to someone else unless they've ever felt it. So, And you don't think too clearly, and okay. you don't realize it unless you're with someone, and they're like, wait, I think we need to stop and figure out what's going on. Very true. So part of the difficulty when someone with COPD wants to start an exercise program is knowing what's safe, because if your judgment is impaired, if your levels are lower, you may not understand what's safe. So the goal is to have a professional who knows exactly where you should be at monitoring you during this entire exercise routine. 
what are how long is an exercise program for pulmonary rehab? What is the usual course? Is it you know three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, the rest of your life? Great question. Uh, well, first it starts with the re- referral from the physician, uh, which will provide us guidelines based on what that uh, physician wants this particular patient's oxygenation or uh, pulse ox. Or that pul- little monitor yes. we talked about, yep. What they want it to be, uh, what they want it to be during exercise and what's acceptable parameters. When the patient comes the first day, it will be a- an assessment to see what they can do. Um, followed by an exercise prescription for a total of 13 sessions, so twice a week for about six and a half weeks. And when you look at some of the national data, (laughs) because this is, you know, September 1st, they're starting this here, so we don't have any data to compare it yet with, but when you look at national data, what are the end results of a pulmonary rehab program? Do people walk longer, feel better, feel stronger, have fewer hospital stays, have fewer what we call exacerbations of their lung condition? What's the good stuff? Why would somebody want to participate in this? Well, all of the above, all the things that you just said. Uh, main thing is endurance. And, and one thing I do need to say is is the, the number one cause of COPD is smoking. So if, if we get patients in the program that are, are smokers, we number are going to really, yes, okay. absolutely you have to quit. So we will be working on the smoking cessation piece of it. Um, but the outcomes have shown an increased endurance and strength, uh, decreasing the symptoms and those flare-ups, which we call exacerbations. We're really trying to cut down on the number of readmissions and ER visits. Uh, that is key. And the patients feel better. Part of the exercise, it's not just exercise. There is an edu- educational component to each session. So when they come in, it's like a, a, a group class. They will get 15 minutes of education, and there's a different topic every week. A big thing is, besides the smoking cessation, is medication management, making sure they know how to take their medications properly, especially with their inhalers and their discs, so that they know how to get the medicine in, know when to refill, knowing when their medicine is out. Those are big things that we'll be touching on. But every session is is an education piece followed by the exercise. Honestly, I think lots of people could benefit from the medication education part because how many times do I see people who say, I don't know when I should take this one and this one and can I combine them? And it's not just inhalers. It's pretty much all medications Absolutely. that I think people really need to learn more about. But okay, so this is a whole 13 sessions where you do an initial evaluation and then 12 more sessions. And at the end of this, you as the person with COPD should feel stronger, have greater endurance, have a better understanding of your condition, and also maybe just overall feel better and stay out of the hospital. Absolutely. And hopefully we have put them on an exercise regimen that they're going to Continue. stick to for the rest of their lives. So is it just a one-time event where they would do pulmonary rehabilitation, or would they come back after a few years and do it again, or maybe it's a little too early to know that yet? Well, it depends on their diagnosis. Um, obviously, it depends on their physician because the physician is referring. Um, there is no lifetime, uh, you know, exceeding or limit to pulmonary rehab. It is it is associated with pulmonary events, uh, so that is something that we'll be working through with with the pa- patients on an individual basis. But then there's also maintenance programs that we can talk to. That so the sessions initially are covered by insurance, and then after they graduate, is what we we say from the program, then they can go into a wellness or a maintenance type of program, which is more like a gym membership. Well, and I know for the cardiac rehab patients, and one of the folks that I see was your first 
person who graduated and went to all the classes. And every time I see him, I I think of him and I say it, and he's happy that we remembered. Um, But when you think about a cardiac rehab, so you learn to do these exercises. If you've had a cardiac event, a heart attack, a surgery, or something of the like, and you go to do cardiac rehab, it's so that you can safely do it during a time when you're monitored with the intention that once we know you're safe and you know your parameters and your limits, you keep doing that on your own indefinitely. Exactly, because they know that if I've pushed them in the gym and they were safely able to do it, then they can go ahead and do it on their own. So it may not be walking on a treadmill, but it could be walking at Ala Moana and and knowing what their limits are, knowing to use their uh, proper breathing techniques to kind of slow them down. Those are huge components for the pulmonary patient. Yeah, actually, as a as a patient, that was my biggest problem when I first got diagnosed in 2000 was not knowing what was safe and what was not safe because I had always thought I was perfectly healthy and everything was safe. And then they said, oh, no, your lungs are really bad and, you know, you really need to be more careful. I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> it's hard to know. And if you have never been in a situation where you're pushing yourself to the limit and someone is watching you to make sure you're safe, you won't know where your limit is. So once you discover where the limit is, now you know, here's my parameters. Here's where I can do my workouts. And I know if I get to this extent, I've been there before and it's okay. Yeah, I know how to safe. breathe. Yeah. I yes. was safe. Things are good. So all those sorts of educational points that I think it makes me wonder, how have we not had pulmonary rehab yet? Actually, we did have it. Okay. And then it was all cut because the reimbursement was so poor. But Medicare and Medicaid realized that that was actually a bad thing. So then they decided to universally reimburse it again. But everyone has been slow to pick it up because they're not reimbursing at a very high rate. Yeah. Re- reimbursement is is an issue, but for uh, at rehab, we know that there's such a community need that it's something that we felt pretty strongly about that we needed to provide for our patients in the community. And so how long ago was it that the pulmonary rehabilitation program went away? Before I was diagnosed in 2000. <laughs> okay, so for at least 15 years, we haven't had this capacity, Except if not the, longer. Except the VA. Yeah. The VA had it. Tripler but, did have, have one that stopped a couple of years ago, I believe. That they lost their doctor that was supervising it. Okay, so if you were a civilian that did not have VA benefits, for a decade and a half, you didn't have access to this. Unless you went out of state. And now this is becoming available, which, honestly, there's a lot of people who don't even know they have COPD or may get diagnosed in the earlier stages, and that's when we really want to intervene. That's when we want to make sure we can improve their function and keep them healthy longer so they don't have to suffer with these symptoms. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition and with Susie from the Rehabilitation Hospital of the Pacific, and we're talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. What does this mean what do you do if you get this diagnosis? And is there anything you can do to help yourself? And luckily, we're finding out, yes, there's a lot you can do. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk some more with Val about an upcoming conference so that if you think, hey, maybe I have this or, hey, my grandpa does, my uncle does, my auntie does, how do I learn more? There's a great event where you're going to be able to go and hear more about it. So we'll talk about that when we come back. But remember, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. 
If you're trying to make it in the comedy world today, here with some words of wisdom. If you hacked someone's joke and used it, you would be instantly ostracized. I'm Kai Rizdahl. The rules, however, might be different on the Internet. I don't know. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. A breeze rustling a bamboo grove, a quiet room full of memory. Darren Miyashiro, Sandy Tsukuyama, and Chris Molina take you there in an evening of contemporary Japanese koto and shakuhachi music on August 29th. A unique concert of exquisite artistry in HPR's Atherton Studio, Saturday the 29th, 7.30 p.m. Call 955-8821 during business hours or go to hprtickets.org. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Here in the studio, today we're talking about COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And we've got right here Valerie Chang from the COPD Coalition, and we also have Susie from the Rehabilitation Hospital of the Pacific. And I didn't want to call you Susan. You said that makes you feel like you've gotten in trouble. (laughs) And uh, so we won't do that, but we just did. And I want to talk a little bit about what's coming up because, Valerie, this is the ninth annual event that you've really spearheaded, trying to get the word out and educating people about COPD. And there's a very familiar MC to that event, HPR's very own talk show executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich, will be there. Tell me a little bit about what's going to go on at this event and why people might be interested in going because... COPD is something that affects a lot of folks, and not just the smokers, as we learned earlier in our little myth-busting segment, but why would people want to go? Well, there are 46,000, over 46,000 Hawaii adults that have been diagnosed with COPD. 46,000? Yes. So it's, okay. a, it's a pretty big problem. And, well, and I think so. You can almost fill Aloha <laughs> Stadium with that. Yeah, and it's a pretty big problem nationwide as well. Um We have some really exciting speakers. Um, We have Susan Gabriel, who's with us today. Susie. She's in trouble. Susan Gabriel. Susan and I see you cringe, and you're like, oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Well, it says it on her card. That's okay. I'll let it go. (laughs) All right. We've done it a couple of times now. Anyway, so she's going to talk about the program because there are so many patients that are very interested in it. Um, We're also going to have Larry Pellerito flying in from Arizona to bring all his different oxygen machines because... Some people, when they exercise especially, need a little more oxygen, and their bodies can't quite produce enough, so they can have these smaller and more portable machines, and I use one for flying. And also when I'm going to altitude, like Yellowstone, I need it at 24-7 at, in Yellowstone and in Denver. So if people have lungs that need a little extra support, 
He's going to bring all these different devices so people can touch them and try them out. And, and it's not the big green canister. No. You know, I always found that, I mean, here you are with someone who already has a lung condition, and you're making them lug around this big thing as if they have the energy to be pulling or carrying something else with them. So if anybody out there is on oxygen, if you want to know what are your other options for devices, hey, this would be a way you can find out. Or even if they're not, but they might need it for flying or might need it if they're going to go on a trip to Yellowstone or somewhere that's high. You know, I didn't ever think I'd need it because I was diagnosed in 2000 and I didn't even need it for Denver. But over the years, eventually I did need it for airplanes and now I need it for, you know, when I go to high altitude places. So now I can go anywhere as long as I have my little devices. And some of them are as light as four pounds. So people can just wear them unobtrusively as a backpack and walk around the mall. And no one even knows they're on oxygen. So it's it's very handy. Um, there's also going to be um, Gihan Devindra. And he's a pulmonologist and intensivist at Queens. And he's going to talk about the latest in COPD and how to stay as healthy and active as possible. And we're also honoring, for the first time, two of our fabulous lawmakers who have made us the first in the nation to have the cleanest air possible, where we don't allow tobacco products and electronic smoking devices to be sold to people under 21. And that is Senator Rosalind Baker and Representative Della Albalati. And we just want to salute them because we just think that they have shown a lot of leadership. Now, tell me a little bit about that connection between smoking and, and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, because most people who get it are smokers. One out of six are not. Five out of six are. And do you find that there are a lot of folks who get the diagnosis and yet still happen to be smoking? Yeah, it's really hard to quit. I mean, people that are on, on drug, other drugs and alcohol and smoking find that the last and hardest thing to quit is the smoking because it messes with your brain. It, it does this thing to your dopamine receptors in your brain, and it just makes you just love it and crave it. You know, it's just, it's hard. Now, that being said, though, we don't have that high a number of active smokers in Hawaii today. The disease has already happened based on what they did 20 years ago when they used to smoke for 30-some years. So it's, it's dealing with the effects of that habit and where they are today. Yeah, like, so a lot of the smoking cessation efforts we do now are really going to pay off when these people hopefully do not get COPD when they get into the later years of their lives. So whatever efforts people make now are actually going to help in the future. Exactly. Yeah. They're, you know, like Leonard Nimoy, he was Spock, and he actually was a smoker, and he stopped. But many decades later, he got COPD, and in fact, He's doing a movie. His uh, heirs are doing a movie about the latest in COPD as a legacy to him. Well, when you think about it, for anybody out there who said, I haven't smoked in 20 years, but boy, when I was a smoker, I smoked a pack or two a day and I smoked for however many years they did, they could be affected now. So even if you're not an active smoker, when we say smoking is a risk factor for COPD, we don't mean that it's just I smoke today. It could be I haven't smoked in 20 years and yet you could still get the diagnosis. Exactly. Definitely. And that's actually something that is pretty uncommon that uh, people have to worry about. We've got Jim on the line from Maui. Jim, welcome to The Body Show. Uh, yes, thank you for uh, taking my call. I'm uh, 
calling because you just talked about how legislation was so good for, uh, you know, uh, cutting back on smoking and, uh, you know, the devices and things, uh, making it uh, safer to walk the streets. Um, in Maui here, uh, we have, uh, you probably heard they burn sugar cane. And uh, I find that in combination uh, with the, uh, well, like the past uh, week or so, with the uh, the, the socked-in humidity, the uh, really high temperatures, and uh, bog and cane burning, it just about knocks me out. Well, and that's certainly true, Jim. You know, they have done some studies that have looked at whether or not during the sugarcane burning time, are there more visits to the emergency room? Can this affect people who have lung conditions, asthma, COPD, amongst other things? And there definitely can be an effect. And Val, you're, you're shaking your head like, I'm not going to go to Maui right now where they're burning cane because I, I, I need my oxygen here in Oahu. What are your thoughts for someone like Jim? Jim, do you happen to have Sorry. COPD? Pardon me? Do you happen to have a lung condition? Oh, yeah, I have COPD. That's, you do. That's, that's you know, the key. It, it, like I'm saying, it's, it's really exacerbated primarily by the cane burning, but also I live in Kahului, which is kind of dusty. And then um, so you've got cane burning, you've got dust. And then on those wonderful days when we get kind of a, a, a socked-in blanket over here with the humidity and, uh, and vlog, uh, it's just about enough to incapacitate you. Huge headache, and oh man, it's so hard. It's the triple threat. You've got the weather, you've got the environment, and then you've got the other things that are being done in the environment that are affecting you. It definitely the, sounds the, like there's a bit of a problem for you there. Now, yeah, yeah I, I was wondering, our, our legislature, you know, the, the government is supposed to be protecting. Also, a lot of people, children get asthma, stuff like that, and, and they, keep, they keep saying, oh, yeah, you know, maybe next year uh, about the cane burning. But, you know, the, I thought, you know, this should, it should be illegal because it's, it's poisoning the atmosphere, and the role of the government is to protect the people. So I, I just... I'm, you know, every time I'm really suffering and I get that blazing headache and, and the pain, I get mad about it. Well, Jim, and I certainly sympathize with you because you have a serious medical condition that is clearly exacerbated by things that are out of your control, unfortunately. And, and that makes things very difficult for you, particularly in a situation like you are where you've got that triple whammy, those things all happening at once. And so... You know, Val, I bet you talk with a lot of folks who have a lot of frustration about the fact that they now have a medical problem. And boy, it took years, if not decades, for the smoking industry to actually admit that they are aware that nicotine is addictive and that they are aware that smoking is a risk for lung cancer. And we know that that is the case. And medically, we knew for years that was going on. But a lot of the major companies were still in denial. It took decades for them to realize it. You know, when we think about people who have exposures and COPD, do you think we have a really good handle on all the different potential environmental causes? I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, smoking is going to cause it. But, you know, some of these other inhalations that we hear people have, whether it be cane, whether it be you mentioned restaurants, whether it be cooking oil or even in other countries where they they inhale smoke from their cooking in developing countries, there's a lot of folks who are being exposed to things that they breathe in, and that could really cause a serious problem. Do we have a good handle on 
how much this is really affecting folks? Actually, yes. Um, there are studies in the developing world and um, even in parts of the U.S. where they have a uh, indoor air quality problem um, where they show that especially women and young children are having a lot of breathing problems because of the poor indoor air quality and, you know, kitchen smoke and the smoke that they use to heat the house. And they tried to introduce cleaner smoke, cleaner stoves, but the problem with the cleaner stoves is it didn't make the food taste the same. And then they tried to op- introduce windows, but then they said that it's colder. So, you know, there's a lot of barriers they have to overcome. But for people in Hawaii that have problems with the outdoor air quality. Usually um, I've heard that we're supposed to just stay indoors, like stay in somewhere that's air conditioned, like the library or the mall, or, you know, just, you know, just try to limit exposure and don't do heavy activities outdoors in bad air. So for the last week or two, it's been pretty hot and humid and, and not so fun. What have you been doing with yourself? I've been doing a lot of indoor things. A lot of indoor. So you've seen like every movie that's Turn out there on in the, the fan. theater. Okay. And really tried to find a way. Because I know a few years ago, you know, when we used to have a lot of a lot of fireworks on 4th of July and on New Year's Eve, that people would be concerned. And anybody with a lung condition was told, stay indoors, go to a movie theater, go somewhere with air conditioning, just to limit their exposure to the smoke from that particular event. Now we don't have as much because of the ban on fireworks, but still the same recommendations apply. Yeah, and actually we would rent a hotel room and just stay there overnight for, you know, for uh, New Year's Eve. And my kids didn't like it, but... Were you somewhere was, where there was a lot of fireworks then? Oh, East Honolulu, yeah. Okay, so for you to stay protected, you literally got out of town and went to Waikiki or somewhere else with a hotel and stayed in the air Central air, yeah, because we don't have central air at home. Okay, so that's that's one suggestion. And unfortunately, Jim, it may mean that you wind up spending time indoors more than you'd like to. But if it if it's a matter of I can breathe and I can't, then you really have to find a way to make it work so that you can feel comfortable with your breathing and not feel like what's going on outside of your control is something that affects you. Now, Val, we were talking about this event, and it's up and coming. I want you to tell me a little bit more about how folks who might be interested in going to this event, we talked a little bit about some of the folks who are coming. Where and when? Give me the details. It's going to be Saturday, September 12th from 9 to 2 at the Old Mabel Smythe, which is also called the Queen's Conference Center, which is at the corner of Punchbowl and South Baratania. Um, it's free and open to the public. So anybody can go. We, we recommend no cost, pre-registration. But let you know they're yeah, coming. Okay. Because we like to make sure there's enough food for everyone and there's enough supplies. Um, we have a lot of exciting partners and um, they want to know how many people to expect. So they're not surprised. Usually there's about two or 300 people. People can register online. Brochures are available at all Oahu Public Libraries. And after the event, for our neighbor island friends and other people, we do make the videos available online so they can watch it at their leisure. And everything is on our website, hawaiicopd.org. People can register online or by email or by calling. Okay, and if they, you know, some folks like the good old telephone, what what number would they call? They would call hawaiicopd.org, which is our phone number, 808-699-9839. 
Okay, and that's a way that they could register to go to the event. You said every year two or three hundred folks show up. Yes. What's the capacity? Um, they really don't want us to have too many more than three hundred because people with lung problems get claustrophobia when they're around crowded spaces. So two or three hundred people is actually a nice number for us. Yeah, that's a good point because you know you don't want to have that. You don't want to have people with a lung condition already feel in any way impaired when they're going to learn more about their yeah. lung condition. And some people bring walkers or wheelchairs or other assistive devices. And there will also be um, hearing assistive devices for people that need that for inside the auditorium. And and there will be a lot of hands-on things and some prizes. And it's a great event. We're, we're really happy about it. And if they can't make that, we also have support groups that meet once a month at Kaiser Honolulu's second Friday of every month. And you know, at ten ten Pensacola, from ten to noon, and we also have a support group that meets at Polymomi Women's Pavilion, and that meets ten to noon second Tuesday of every month. And it's all on our calendar, HawaiiCOPD.org, on the homepage in the bottom. Well, and you would be amazed, and I bet, Susie, you've also seen this as well. When you get a cohort of people who have a medical condition and they all get together and they find other people who have sort of been through some of the same things they're struggling with, there is a power that occurs when you hear from someone who's been there, done that, and has some solutions. And that that power is beyond what your doctor can do and tell you, here's how you fix it. Just being in that group of fellow sufferers that you can really trade stories, share insights, and motivate one another and also share some things that other people might not realize could be really helpful for you. I'm sure you're going to see that even more, and not just with the cardiac services you've been been spearheading for a while, but now also with the pulmonary services too. I think the the support group component of that is probably the most important thing that they'll get out of it um, in many ways because they're not alone and they they share the same story with, with people and that that's priceless. Yeah, like one of the guys in our support group has a really low lung function that's considered really low because it's under 20% of what a normal person can breathe. But he decided he has to be primary caregiver for his beloved wife and so it motivated him to start exercising. And he did a little at a time, and now he's up to playing the harmonica for uh, senior groups with uh, the Small World Harmonica Band, and he also now swims with his oxygen. And he's on oxygen 24-7, but he doesn't let those things get in his way because he knows he has to stay strong for his wife. Well, and when you see people like that, Boy, it motivates you even if you don't have COPD to get COPD to get up and get out there and do something. I mean, if he can swim on oxygen, I can swim without oxygen <laughs> any day of the week. I have no excuse. All right. So it certainly sounds like that support group helped him. And it also is part of why you established this whole group. Valerie, I think it's fantastic. You got a diagnosis that was surprising back in 2000. And yet you've turned this around to be a life mission. Yeah, actually, I was really upset to know there's no cure. So I said, well, if there's no cure, we might as well get together. And the good thing is the people that come to the support group want to live full and active lives. And so they do push each other. And several of them are golfers, and they talk about how they golf and how they deal with their oxygen needs and golf safely. And it's, it's, it's really a wonderful community. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you with 
for sharing your expertise with us today. Valerie Chang from the Hawaii COPD Coalition. You can find information about the group and their upcoming event at hawaiicopd.org. And thank you to Susie Gabriel from Rehabilitation Hospital of the Pacific. Looking forward to the upcoming pulmonary rehab program. I'm going to send some folks your way. Our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich, our engineer David Chong. I'm Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Mm-hmm.